Today, you will hear the views and ideas of our podcast guests. We're eager to showcase their expertise and provide a platform for their views, but they may not always reflect or align with the views of the Positive Effect or the MAP Center for Urban Health Solutions. Welcome to Podcast. We are created by and for people living with HIV. On each episode, we explore what it means to be Paws. We challenge the status quo and we share stories that matter to us. I'm James Watson, and I'm HIV positive. If you're living with HIV, listen up. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I feel kind of strange when I talk about the campaign because, as corny as it sounds, it literally, truly did come to me in a dream one night. We have a great show for you. This is Podcast. Today on podcast, we are going to continue our exploration of leadership and HIV activism from past episodes in an effort to understand more about the activist journey. How do you go from walking along quietly in your life to finding that power in your voice and stepping up to try to make a difference in your world? Where's that change moment? What's the trigger? To discuss all of this and more, I'm thrilled to have with me today the accidental activist himself, Mr. Randy Davis. Randy is the Gay Men's Sexual Health Coordinator with the Gilbert Center in Barrie, Ontario, and heavily involved in the U Equals U movement as an activist and as the Pride Coordinator for the Prevention Access Campaign. In 2018, he was named the Simcoe Pride Person of the Year and is the host of a local TV program called Let's Be Perfectly Queer. If you don't know Randy himself, you may have seen or heard of his very successful social media campaign called I Can Give You, bringing awareness to the undetectable equals untransmittable or U equals U message. Welcome, Randy. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you very much, James. I greatly appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. It's a pleasure. So, I mean, you have been HIV positive for a relatively short period of time, yet you wasted no time in diving into HIV work and activism. So what was it that propelled you to step to the forefront? What was that, that change moment for you? Well, it's funny you say I, I wasted no time. I, I actually feel like I may have wasted some time that, uh, in getting involved in, in the sector. But yes, um, I have been living with HIV now for just over six years. So I consider myself uh, an HIV baby. Um, but yeah, I guess what, what propelled me into uh, the world of activism and advocacy, uh, I got angry one day, one day. My then partner and I had recently moved to, uh, to Barrie, Ontario. Uh, I've lived in Ottawa for uh, 30 plus years prior to that. But uh, coming here for a uh, change of scenery as well as an employment opportunity that, uh, that brought me here from, from Ottawa and I dragged him along with me. I remember watching uh, a local broadcast on uh, CTV Barrie and it was all around the AIDS walk that was happening that year. And this was back in 2017, so I'd been living with HIV for just over two years at that point, and had never gotten involved in any activism or advocacy around living with HIV. But I felt, I don't know whether I was more comfortable that I was away from um, my quote-unquote home, although moving to Barrie actually brought me much closer to where I grew up and where the majority of my family lives. Um, But yeah, I got angry watching the news one night when they were doing a segment on the upcoming AIDS walk. 
And the individuals that they interviewed were folks living with HIV here in Simcoe County locally, but these individuals um, still felt the need in 2017 to have their faces blurred and their, uh, their names not disclosed and their voices changed. So the whole idea of the AIDS walk and, and smashing stigma, it just seemed very ironic to me that there was no one willing to actually put a face forward and say, this is what HIV looks like today. And I decided at that point that, you know, I was in a position at that point where I was very comfortable with my diagnosis. I was uh, in a position where I had amazing support of both my, uh, my partner and my family. And I felt almost this, this need to speak up. Um, so I did. So what were you angry about? What were you angry about? I was angry about the fact that living with HIV was still something to be ashamed of and that folks couldn't openly just talk about the fact that this is a chronic illness that I'm living with and not have to worry about the uh, the shame and stigma that comes with it. Very naive. I absolutely recognize that. Um, I recognize I've been naive when it comes to what it means to live with HIV right from the onset of my diagnosis. Um, but I think part of that naivete and lack of knowledge, I guess, on my part, uh, helped to, uh, to steal me to any issues that might come up because it never occurred to me that there would be so much hate right. around folks living with HIV. It right. just it did not compute with me that that was something that I would ever have to worry about. Wow. You, you mentioned earlier that you said that you thought you might have been a bit late to the game. Uh, why did you say that? Uh, just because, uh, again, uh, I was diagnosed in, in 2015, and it's one of those things that um, in the work that I do now with, uh, uh, with folks living with HIV and especially the newly diagnosed, there's a very similar thread that runs through those stories of diagnosis of, you know, my life is over. Uh, if I'm single, no one's ever going to love me again. And those are all feelings that I felt in 2015, while at the same time recognizing that as little as I knew about HIV when I was diagnosed, I did know enough to know that I'd be fine, that I just needed to get the right doctors, get the right medication, and, and go on with my life. But again, that, that emotional response is, is very real and obviously dates back to a lot of my own um, stigmas that I had internally around HIV that I didn't really occur to me until it affected me as closely as it did. I mean, I, I grew up and graduated high school in 1985, so at the height of the, uh, the AIDS epidemic. And it's one of the things that I attribute to keeping me closeted as long as it did was that that fear of, uh, back in those days anyway, if I had come out as gay, then automatically coming out as gay in 1985 means that the likelihood is you're also living with AIDS. Right. And, and all of those, those uh, you know, the, the, um, the comparisons to folks like, you know, Rock Hudson and, and other things that were going on in that time. I just, I, and I grew up in a very small town. There were 500 kids in my high school. Wow. And we already knew, quote unquote, who the gay guy was in our school. Turns out that that is someone who has become a very good friend of mine. It was a good friend of mine in high school, but we've maintained that, uh, that friendship. They're also someone living with HIV. So we have that uh, in common uh, as well as our our high school background. Right. So that's that's been kind of cool to have those reconnections. Yeah. But uh the, the idea of living with HIV and having to hide it right. didn't sit well with me. So it's important for you to have people out and open and unapologetic to, to sort of model the way as it's put. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and I think it's one of those things that it's my story to tell and to allow someone else to have that power mm-hmm. um, to share my story or disclose my status um, when that's my choice to make. Very much like um, my choice to tell my coming out story. You know, there's right. like a lot of similarities in, in both those stories of, of disclosure and coming out. And I wanted the narrative to be mine, not someone else's. Right. So can you walk us through what the this I Can Give You campaign is all about and how it came about and, and what impact you hope it has? Yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel kind of strange when I talk about the campaign because as corny as it sounds, it literally, truly did come to me in a dream one night. <laughs> yeah, and, and that is in itself strange because I... I don't dream, or at least if I do dream, I never remember them in the morning. <laughs> and I sleep very well. It's just I don't have any dreams that I, I remember. But this one um, sort of stuck with me. And I think it it was sparked around the idea of, of the U equals U campaign. And more specifically, uh, Terrence Higgins Trust with their Can't Pass It On campaign, which was then translated um, to a similar campaign here in Canada by Katie. And, you know, I'm a huge supporter of U equals U, a prevention access campaign, um, I will speak about U equals U and what it means to be undetectable and, and the power that that can, um, can really lead to ending this epidemic for as long as it takes. But one of the things that strikes me in, in a lot of the narratives around being undetectable is that theme of, I can't give you HIV, I can't give you HIV, I can't give you HIV, which is a great message. But I just kept thinking, what about all the amazing things? Because I've met some unbelievable powerful people living with HIV uh, since my diagnosis and certainly since getting involved in the sector. And these are folks that are creative and talented and passionate. And there's just so much more, not to, uh, um, to belabor the point, positive aspects of folks living with HIV that go well beyond their diagnosis, that that's what I wanted to highlight. So the, the thought of HIV and using those letters to describe, you know, I can give you hope, I can give you inspiration, I can give you value, right. but I can't give you HIV. So focusing more on the, the number of positive aspects in someone's life that folks living with HIV are able to contribute to our society, as opposed to just the one thing that we can't give you. You know, it's such it's such an exciting campaign. I, I you know, when I first saw it as a person living with HIV, you know, I was, it's inspiring. And I was really impressed with sort of its interactive nature. Um, it was thrilling to see people have a forum to step up and gather sort of collectively around the same positive message. But like many people living with HIV, I'm a bit jaded and, and very careful about putting myself out there again for use in another campaign or another fundraiser. So can you tell me why do you think people have been responding so positively to this campaign? You know, that's a very good question. And I, I honestly don't know a real definitive answer to that, especially given, as we've talked about already, I'm fairly new in the sector. So I don't know that I really have um, that credibility, for lack of a better word, behind me. But... I've, I've been able to partner with some some amazing people, and maybe those partnerships have, have translated. Bruce Richmond, for example, who began U equals U and the Prevention Access Campaign. It's coming up to almost the three-year anniversary to the very day that I first met Bruce. And when I think about the fact that it's only been three years that I've known Bruce Richmond and, and other local folks like Brittany Cameron, Bob Leahy, these are all people that, uh, that I met at the same time. Uh, Brian Jones, who's a uh, grassroots or... Uh, 
dirt roots activist in the U.S. around U equals U. I had, was fortunate enough to meet them at a, a symposium in Ottawa around U equals U. So I think maybe that credibility in that respect has helped. But I, I made a very pointed attempt to just reach out to the broad community. Mm-hmm. And the only uh, requirement for anyone who wanted to become involved in the campaign was that they needed to be living with HIV with a suppressed viral load. And that wasn't to exclude our brothers and sisters who aren't able to uh, attain a a suppressed viral load. I absolutely recognize that. But this is a a pointed campaign around what it means to be undetectable. So I I had to sort of exclude a few folks who wanted to be involved that uh, haven't reached undetectable yet. But I just just put it out there on social media and I... uh, uh, I made a plea on the U equals U Facebook page, which has got thousands of followers. Yeah. And to my surprise, it hit a chord with folks yeah. and people started reaching out to me and asking how to get involved and where do I send my picture to and what words would make sense for me. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to tell you what words to use because they, they need to be yours. They're not my interpretation of what you can give. It's what you feel you can give. So if you you know, if, if hope is the only word you come up with, and I've had 12 other people use hope for their H in the HIV, then that's fine yeah. because it's about the individual. Yeah. And yeah, I, I've done a little bit of research into who's been responding, and I think I've hit every single continent across our planet other than Antarctica. Wow. Uh, Australia has been huge. I've had um, a, a great response from, uh, from folks in Australia. I, I was actually just on a call on the weekend um, doing a presentation on HIV and stigma with the folks from Gilead, with their uh, HIV nurses and pharmacists. And one of the reasons why they asked me to, to speak was because of the I Can Give You campaign. And that just, when I got the invitation back in December, that just blew me away that it would resonate that much on the other side of the world. I mean, they're 16 hours ahead of us. What really captures me about the campaign is, be- is I think, because it's for sort of personal activism, you know, it comes from you. It's, it, feel, it feels genuine. It is genuine. It's not coming from a big organization or a pharmaceutical company. It's coming from you, a person living with HIV. And I think that has a lot to do with its success. And I, I congratulate you on that. Thank you. And it, it sort of makes me, you know, begs the question, so can anybody be an activist? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think just like, and, and we learned this in your, uh, your guests um, from a previous show that I listened to recently, um, Tara Jewell from, uh, from PLDI, yeah. the uh, OAN initiative, something that I've been involved with. I actually sit on the board for the OAN, so I'll give a little bit of a <laughs> disclosure there. But yeah, even prior to my involvement with the OAN, getting involved in, in PLDI and the idea of leadership looks different for all of us. And that doesn't mean that it's uh, any better or any worse than anyone else. It's just, it's, that's what it is. And I think activism and advocacy goes hand in hand with that uh, that same mindset that anyone can be a leader, anyone can be an activist, anyone can be an advocate. It's just on what level you, you want to go or, uh, or have the capability to, to go. And I've, again, am very fortunate and recognize the privilege that I sit in to be able to do the work I do and do it without um, a whole lot of strings attached. So yeah, it, it, makes, it makes it my own advocacy. And we talk about, you know, the, the I Can Give You campaign is, is my campaign and I'm extremely proud. But I, at the same time, I'm happy to sort of partner with other organizations to, to grow the campaign. You know, all of the posters and, and things that you see on social media, I use Canva. It's a free app that I go to and I take their pictures and I add the words and the U equals U logo and post it on social media. So it's, a, it's not rocket science, but I'm, I'm fortunate enough that uh, there has gotten some attention from 
national organizations. Um, Canfar, for example, reached out to me wanting to uh, use the campaign to promote a new website that they're launching next month. And we shot a video, uh, a video translation of the campaign as opposed to a poster, which is something that I had envisioned in my mind as wanting to do anyway. Right. Certainly being able to partner on that with a national organization. And I'm just on pins and needles waiting for uh, for it to be released so I can actually share it with others. I've seen the final version of, of the minute long video and I love it. And to be able to share that more widely is is something I'm excited to do in the very near future. Amazing. Absolutely. So what is one piece of advice you'd give for uh, someone living with HIV who might want to take their first steps into activism or advocacy? Like, what should people consider before making that leap, do you think? Oh, gosh, that's such a a personal question that it's hard for me to give a a definitive answer. But really, I think I I often just sort of give examples of, of my experience and what made me feel comfortable. And that was, number one, if, if you're going to, you know, get into sharing of your experiences, certainly as publicly as I do, then, uh, then for me, it was important that I made those closest to me who weren't already aware, I, I needed to let them know beforehand. Um, so my mother, for example, comes to, to mind who I hadn't told my diagnosis to, but knowing that I was going to start speaking publicly, I let her know. Because originally when I was diagnosed, I thought the only people that I ever need to disclose to and uh, and talk about the fact that I'm living with HIV are people that I might decide I, I want to have a, a sexual relationship with. Anybody else, you know, it's not, it's, not, it's not their business. I was very naive around disclosure laws and HIV criminalization. I really knew very little about that. But very early on in my diagnosis, my hand was, was sort of forced. There was a situation where it was... You know, either you reveal your HIV status or I'm going to do it for you. And that, again, angered me. And mm-hmm. uh, and, yeah. and that's, again, I didn't disclose publicly at that point. Certainly not as publicly as I, as I do now. But that was one of those things. You know what? This is my story to tell. I wasn't ready to tell it just yet um, at that point. Um, but my hand was forced and I wanted to make sure <sighs> that, again, it was my story. So I wanted the folks that... Uh, um, I was being threatened with being disclosed to. I wanted them to hear it from me before they heard it from a third party who really didn't have any the, the knowledge as to what I was going through uh, as much as I do myself. Yeah. So it's one of those things that it's, especially when it comes from someone that you don't expect it to, that would not necessarily have your back, but, you know, would be more understanding of the circumstances. That wasn't the case. And I can forgive, but I have a very difficult time forgetting. So, yeah. <laughs> so I, I made the, the point of, you know, it was, Time for me to sit these folks down and let them know my story. Right. But I think that's, if you make the decision that you want to get involved in, in this sort of work and, and be as public as, as you are, um, I always recommend, you know, reach out to folks like me who are doing it. Uh, I didn't do that. I didn't really have any resources at the, at the time that I decided to jump in to, uh, to speak. But I had, as I said before, the love and support of, of my family and the man who is now my husband. I think that's incredibly important to make sure you have a support system around you because as much as I have this drive to speak out about living with HIV and and try and redefine what it means to live with HIV in 2021, it can also get really exhausting sometimes. And it's it's good to have somebody that can understand that and, and see it and say, you know, it's time to maybe step back or take a break and right. maybe say no once in a while to, to some things instead of saying yes to, to everyone. 
Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, it's I mean you have to put yourself out there a lot. I mean, it's hard to have a down day, I would imagine. So, so how do you stay energized and healthy? Yeah, it, it, that, it's very true. It's it's definitely it's very rare that I have a down day, especially in the work that I do. Right as uh, as the gay men's sexual health coordinator at the Gilbert Center, which is an AIDS service organization, most of of the folks that go online that are looking for help have access to my email address and and my cell phone number uh, for my work number. And as much as I try to shut those off and put them aside in in off hours and on the weekends, I also would hate to miss somebody who was in crisis just because it's after five o'clock on a, on a Friday afternoon or, or a Saturday afternoon when I'm not technically at work. So I don't turn my phone off and I, I don't stop looking at my emails when it's not work hours. And I think part of that is, and I, I've done a lot of workshops and been involved in um, webinars of talking about self-care and, you know, the idea of a bubble bath. Well, as much as I love to sit in my hot tub or even have a bubble <laughs> bath once in a while or, or read a good book, my self-care is being able to be there to talk to folks who are looking for, for my help, whether it be in, in finding um, a doctor to help them because they don't have anyone in their area that is an HIV specialist whether it be somebody who's newly diagnosed who just wants to use me as a sounding board or whether it's someone, as you suggested, reaching out to ask, you know, how do I get involved in some of the work that you're doing? And I, I had an hour-long conversation with, uh, with an individual just this past week around that, that very topic, somebody who had been newly diagnosed probably um, maybe six to eight months ago that connected with me through the work that I do, um, started following me on social media and they're at the point now where they want to, you know, start dipping their toes in the water. And of course, I, I suggested go on the uh, OAN website and scroll down to PLDI and find right. out when, when the next PLDI session is, because that, that for me was an incredibly powerful weekend and one that I will never forget. And it's those, there are resources out there to help folks who, who want to get involved and become leaders or, or activists and advocates. But yeah, I think the biggest thing is certainly for me is having that that support system in place to sort of protect you. I, and I'm also at the point in my life where I, I, I can't say I don't care what people think about me, but I also don't care what people think about me. So <laughs> <laughs> right. as, as strange as that may seem, you know, I, I absolutely yeah. care. And it, it bothers me if I if I hear someone say something negative about the work I'm doing and or who just doesn't really understand it. Um, but at the same time, when I get phone calls or, or messages from folks who really do get it. The response, for example, that I've had um, since my, my presentation on Friday night with the folks in Australia, I got another email overnight from a nurse practitioner that was part of the conference that, uh, that heard me speak and was a, a lovely email. So those are the sort of things that, That's nice. that energize me and, and keep me going. What must really piss you off though is you can't be there. Oh, trust me, <laughs> that has been brought up. I've mentioned it on more than one occasion to the organizers and have right. said, I think they are maybe a little annoyed with me. I, I keep mentioning the fact that, no, I'm, I'm available for next year. <laughs> and they actually did tell me that they have a, a conference just a few weeks after this one that I just did for the nurses and, uh, and pharmacists. They have one for physicians in Australia. And I said, well, next year, fly me down uh, and I might as well just stay. There's no point in, <laughs> in flying me down for one conference and then having me come back and then go back down in three weeks for another. So right. I, I've already told my uh, executive director I may be in Australia for a month next year, but 
We'll see That's how that fantastic. goes. <laughs> you know, I think it's just to change tracks here. I think it's, you know, it's, it's becoming easier to find your voice with so much social media and it's becoming more accessible. Mm-hmm. So do you think online activism is a means to an end or is it necessary to like take the fight to the streets is it, into the real world? Yeah, I don't think you have to use one independently of the other. Certainly right now and over the last the last year, there's been no other option really but online activism. Uh, obviously, we've seen some demonstrations uh, out in the streets around Black Lives Matters, and, and those are important things that I think we need to continue to do regardless of, of a pandemic, safely, of course, and, and masked. Yeah. But I think when things return to whatever, um, and I hate the term new normal, but to whatever our... Uh, before times looks like, mm-hmm. um, or after times, I think it is absolutely important that it go beyond just someone's um, social media platform. And social right. media is great to get the word out and, and expand that uh, that visibility beyond just for me the four corners of Simcoe County. And that's one of the great things about the pandemic. I think is that has sort of allowed me to move beyond the restrictions of of just. Simcoe, Ontario, or even the GTA, because I do get down to Toronto and uh, do events with Casey House and, and other organizations in, in Toronto as well. But I think a combination of both is is really ideal. And I think that's one of the things that I personally think is missing from HIV and, and AIDS activism is that out on the streets getting getting loud and showing our anger. You know, the, the activism around the early days of, uh, of HIV and AIDS that really, really made a difference that I credit to allowing me to be able to live the healthy life that, that I live today. I think we need to get back into that. We need to be shouting loudly for, for a cure, for a vaccine. Um, we're already seeing articles about the fact that the work that's uh, been done around the COVID-19 vaccine, uh, a lot of that is thanks to the efforts of folks looking for a, a vaccine or, or a cure for HIV. And the hope is that when COVID dies down a little bit, that maybe that will spark um, the researchers to uh, to get more heavily involved in in finding a cure. You know, I don't right. know how realistic that may or may not be, but I don't think it's something that we can give up on or forget about. I think we need to be be louder about it. We certainly, certainly need to get louder around access to treatment and care and, mm-hmm. and equitable access to treatment and care right across the board for folks living with HIV. If we seriously want this epidemic to ever end, and that's why U equals U, I think, is so important, because I think it really is the foundation to be able to, to end the epidemic. And that's why we always talk about, when we talk about U equals U, the third U of universal universal access to, to care and treatment, and making sure that those who are even more marginalized against an already marginalized population have the same access to treatment as care as this white cisgendered gay guy does. Absolutely. And I think that's yeah, that's yeah. an important part that that we really need to get angry about. You know, this this is how we this is where we flood the streets, and and stand in front of the government offices for our, our health care and and demand that this be addressed. Yeah. To have an epidemic that's gone on for forty years and still have folks to this day living with a, an illness and and not knowing it. You know, what is it? Ten percent of the population of folks living with HIV in Canada aren't aware, or fourteen percent. It's a, a large enough number that unless we start to to really make a concerted effort to end the epidemic, and that is end, done by making access to treatment and care and testing equitable for all, it, it's never going to happen. And we've got the tools to do it. So it's just finding the political will, and if that means we have to start getting out there and uh, 
talking more bluntly and perhaps even shaming some folks. We've got a, a local health unit here who I, I adore and do a lot of great work with and was very proud when they signed on to the consensus statement for U equals U a couple of years back. They were the first health unit in Ontario to, or in Canada rather, to sign on to the U equals U consensus statement. But that's all they've done. You know, that's it. That's mm. where it ended. And there was supposed to be this whole, we talked about this uh, this campaign and it was going to be on their website and it's nowhere to be found. And it's been crickets ever since. And it's not a fight that I'm prepared to take on right now while they're deploying all the resources to COVID. But it's certainly right there at, uh, at my jump off point as soon as things get back to whatever normal looks like. Right. They're going to hear from me about the fact that, what are you doing? Where, why isn't this being talked about? Yeah. So how does your activism and advocacy work then fit in with your work at the Gilbert Center? Is there tension there? Uh, you know what? I, I feel extremely fortunate to be given the position that I've been given at the Gilbert Center. And I, I certainly have folks that I have to answer to, specifically my executive director. But so much support around the work that I do. And we do have partnerships with with our local health unit through the through the center and and I value those partnerships absolutely there's some awesome folks working at uh, at our local health unit that I've done testing drives with and, and other things um, in the almost three years that I've held my position there so I recognize that it's uh, a lot of these things don't come you know they come from higher up so they may be out of the control of, uh, of some of the the local folks that I deal with but at the same time they know that you know, I'm not going to just go away. <laughs> I, I'm uh, somewhat persistent, sort of a, a dog with a bone when it comes to some things. And again, fortunately, the relationships that I have with the, the management team at, uh, at the Gilbert Center, um, I make a point of all of my social media. Um, you'll see when you log on to uh, my Facebook, for example, that, you know, I've got a disclaimer on there. These are, are my views, not those of my employer. I purposely took a step back from my work's social media. I used to have access to be able to post on that. I, I don't any longer, only because, number one, I don't like to be censored. And right. number two, I, I didn't want to inadvertently attach my personal views to something that the center might not um, be part of, although that very rarely happens. Uh, my, uh, my view in that of the centers is fairly well aligned. And again, they, they've always had my back. I, I spent the entire month of October in 2019, traveling across the country on the Canada-wide Slay Stigma Tour with Trinity K. Bonet from right. season six of RuPaul's Drag Race. And I, I remember getting a, uh, a phone call from my executive director uh, when I was in Yellowknife, which was the first stop of, uh, of the tour, saying that he'd gotten a little bit of grief from folks at the AIDS Bureau about where, where is Randy? Why is he not in Ontario? It's like, well, it's, it's a bigger message, you know, it's, it's, it's the ability to spread this message and this awareness beyond just Simcoe Muskoka. And I'm very fortunate that when I'm given those opportunities, that when I take it to, uh, to my bosses, they've never said no to me. So I had the chance, I, I got the chance to visit 24 cities in 30 days from wow. coast to coast right across this country. It was exhausting. I and thought. I think I could write a book about some of the experiences. With Trinity um, K. Bonet. With no Trinity doubt. K. Bonet, yes. Is she as paranoid as she was on the show or is she, is that different? <laughs> <laughs> no I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not going to comment. <laughs> but I will, I will say this about, about Trinity and, uh, and, and Josh. You know, it, it takes a lot of courage, especially as, uh, as a gay person of color living with HIV, to be that openly 
disclosing and sharing their status. And let's face it, as, as much as we like to think we're, we're so much better in Canada, I think we've, mm. we've seen that that's really not the case. And to go to places like, um, like Yellowknife and, uh, and Calgary and um, Saskatoon, uh, we didn't make it to Sudbury, unfortunately, because of a snowstorm in uh, in Winnipeg. That was the one stop that was on the tour that we couldn't make. But to to be so open and and share their story, because Trinidad, as much as it was a an infotainment tour, so there was a lot of entertainment um, from not only Trinity but other local drag and, and queer artists at every stop along the way. I think some of the most poignant moments came from the times where Trinity and I, Trinity and I had a Q and A on stage and oftentimes had the ability to take questions from from the audience and to just be so open about their experience and and share those stories incredibly impactful um i mean the, the number of folks that would come up to us after the show um having either disclosed for the, the very first time to us during the q a or disclosed to us wow. personally afterwards it was huge it was huge yeah. but yeah. it certainly highlighted the amount of stigma that still exists across this country. I mean, I think just about every stop, there was questions around saliva being a means of transmission of HIV, which... Wow. Yeah, wow, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I just have a few more questions for you. Some that I've... I just want to know. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I may or may not answer, but... I know, ahead. I know, I know. Um, I want to talk a little bit about interviewing because I've never really interviewed somebody who interviews people. And I'm talking about interviewing for Let's Be Perfectly Queer. Right. And I, and I think of this, because after when, when Larry King died, when he passed away, the famous CNN reporter, I heard that he purposefully did little to no research on his guests before speaking to them because he thought it would interfere with the interview. He wanted to be inquisitive and learn along with his audience. What's, what's your approach to an interview? How much research or prep time do you go into, do you put into a show before you record yeah, I mean, while I had not heard um, Larry's approach, I would have to say somewhat similar, actually. And, and I often, when I reach out to a guest to have them on the show, one of the things that I like least is when they ask me to give them a rundown of some of the questions I'm going to ask. It's like, mm, I really don't know what questions I'm going to ask just yet. <laughs> so right. I, obviously, I do a little bit of background because obviously if it's everybody that comes on my show is someone that I want on my show, very right. rarely, a couple of times I've had folks reach out to me and say, we'd like to be on your show. What do you think? And my take on Let's Be Perfectly Queer right from, from the get-go has been, I want this to be a platform for others to be able to share stories or talk about initiatives that, that they feel are important. So it's not, it's not about what I want to, to speak about. It's always about what my guest wants to speak about. For me, I, I like to sort of let them take the lead on the show. So I'll get an idea from a guest. What is it? What is it? The message that you, that you want to share? What do you want to focus on? Because it's only half an hour, which mm -hmm. sometimes I'm grateful for because even half an hour for some guests is way too long. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> Oh, is this ever going to end? But at the same time, I'm, I'm certainly, you know, 90% of, uh, of the shows I do half an hour is like, and I'm, I'm screaming because I'll uh, back when we were in the studio, I would, here in my earpiece from my producer that it's time to wrap up. But now that we're doing it through Zoom, I have my uh, my cell phone up and I'll get a text from my producer saying, you know, you need to wrap up. And I'm nowhere near wanting to wrap up and haven't really gotten to the meat of anything because the conversations have been uh, been that fruitful. 
Right. Uh, it's a bit of a, a combination, I guess, supposed to a little bit of a, a background because I don't want to go in completely blind, but I, I like it to be very conversational. So I don't want it to be too scripted. I'll, I'll script an, an introduction and, and read that so I don't miss anything or uh, make sure that I get pronouns correct and, and that sort of thing. But beyond that, I, I don't do a whole lot of preparation for the show specifically. It's, again, just a quick background on who my guest is and um, what they want to focus on for their message and then let it flow sort of organically from there. Right. You're not beginning the uh, interview. And who are you? Or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. And I'm by, no, I'm by no means an expert. I mean, I've only been doing Let's Be Perfectly Queer for, uh, we're in our second season now. Right. And it's, it's, it's one of those things, again, that very fortunate it sort of fell into my lap, like a lot of things have done since my diagnosis. And, uh, and, and that in itself is, is weird. When I think back on what my life was like um, before being diagnosed um, to where it is today, you know, when I look back on my life six years ago, if you had told me that I would be doing the work I'm doing now and have the impact that I've been able to have, I wouldn't have believed it. I honestly would not have believed it. So Lemonade out of lemons. Yeah, exactly. Right. Do you get stage fright? I get nervous. Absolutely. I, I definitely felt that during, uh, during the tour with Trinity. That was... I mean, by the time we, we got into sort of a rhythm, it wasn't so bad, but I, I absolutely remember just sweating buckets right. um, for our first show in Yellowknife. And one of the, uh, one of the local performers was uh, uh, having their makeup done by, by the person that does their makeup. And, and of course, with this head under, under lights, it can get a little drippy. And I was, <laughs> they gave me the tip of uh, using deodorant or antiperspirant oh. on, my, on my head to cut down on the glare and help cut down on uh, some of the sweating. And, and it worked. It worked. That's what I do when I go on stage now, or did then. I haven't been on stage in quite some time. And I don't uh, get nearly as nervous now as I did in the, in the early days. And certainly much more comfortable on a Zoom platform where I can sit at my kitchen table like I am now and just have a, a conversation. But yeah, I definitely get nervous. I, I was nervous on, on Friday night before they connected me with the uh, with the 130 plus um, nurses and pharmacists in, in Australia, because that's a group that I'd never spoke to before. And I don't have any kind of a scientific background or anything. It's all just experience of this guy who lives with HIV. And right. why, why on earth they would want to hear from me, I don't know. But well, I've, I've, I've started to, to recognize, and it's, it's a term that, I, um, that was brought to my attention even before I, I started my career in, in activism and advocacy, and that's around... Uh, imposter syndrome. I didn't know what that was. And I uh, had some issues around that uh, in my previous employment. And I still, as much as I'm much more comfortable doing the work I do now, and often talk about, you know, the quote of, if you uh, find a job you love, you'll never work another day in your life. I didn't know what that meant until I started doing this work. And I really honestly believe that now. I didn't feel that way about the finance career I had, not in any way, shape or form. I didn't hate my job. But it wasn't nearly as uh, fulfilling and uh, soul-nurturing as what I do now. Right. So what's one thing you wish you had known when you began your journey living with HIV? Hmm. That's a very good question, and one I don't think I've ever been asked before. Um, I guess it's the one thing I, I wish I'd known is it's more about the... Uh, the amount of stigma that really does exist. Because as I mentioned earlier, I was very naive about that and, uh, and still get caught off guard by 
some of the hatred, there's no other word for it, but the hatred that um, is leveled upon me simply because of an illness. You know, if, if I was talking to you as an advocate around folks living with diabetes or living with cancer, I don't think I'd have near the uh, the hate thrown at me the way that I do simply because I live with HIV. Right. So, but even that, I don't know whether, you know, maybe it's a good thing I didn't know as much as I do now because that might have hindered my ability to get involved and, and really open up about what it means to live with HIV. So it's one of those things, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and mm-hmm. would I like to have known? Yes. Would it have changed? Maybe, but maybe it would not have been um, a good change. Right. Well, I'm happy you're in the space you're in now, for sure. Thank you. So I have five quick questions for you. Five rapid fire questions. Okay. You only can choose one. (laughs) Yes, I've listened to the program. (laughs) People try to cheat. but I I know, I will not cheat. (laughs) Okay. Facebook or Instagram? Instagram. Hairy or smooth? Hairy. RuPaul or Michelle Visage? Oh, Michelle. (laughs) Introvert or extrovert? Introvert. Angry letters or protests? Protests. Fantastic. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for being my guest on the show today. I very much appreciate the opportunity, James. Thanks very much. It's been wonderful speaking with you. That's it for us this month. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time on Podcast. And if you have any comments or questions or ideas for new episodes, send me an email at podcastforyou at gmail.com. That's the number four and the letter U. Podcast is produced by The Positive Effect at the MAP Center for Urban Health Solutions. The Positive Effect is a facts-based, lived experience movement powered by people living with HIV and can be visited online at positiveeffect.org. Technical production is provided by David Grine of the Acme Podcasting Company in Toronto.